0: Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Discem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. It's Good to have you with us today. We are talking to specialist urologist, Dr. Rafael Bloomberg, who is a consultant urologist at Chris Onibergwarnath Hospital as well as in private practice at Life Bedford Gardens. Hospital, Rafael, thanks so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Good. I know interviewing is not your favorite. You like it, a person who likes to stay off the limelight and kind of forced you into this. So I appreciate your time uh, taking out your time to do this. So just so people can, uh, can familiarize themselves, the difference between a urologist and a nephrologist, urologist deals with the surgical problems of uh, the urinary system and a nephrologist would um, deal with the medical problems. Do you want to just clarify exactly what a urologist is and what a urologist does?
1: So as you said, it's, a, it's the branch of surgery that deals with the urinary tract. Um, we deal with a lot of the cancers relating to the urogenital tract as well um, and diseases like large prostate, stone diseases, um, as well as some many other functional problems, um, voiding problems, problems urinating and so on. Um, it encompasses, you know, in addition to that, um, erectile dysfunction, problems relating to, um, to to skin conditions, anything that, that really affects
0: um, the urinary tract,
1: the genital tract as
0: well. Okay, and uh, can we just speak anatomically about all the, you can tell me if I leave out anything, but includes the penis, the testicles, prostate, bladder, ureters, and kidneys, Do I leave anything out?
1: Um, Pretty much, pretty much
0: correct. Okay, so uh, let's start off with uh, something that's quite close to my heart, just because we've had family uh, members involved in it, with the different cancers of the urinary tract. And I guess prostate cancer is the most common, is that correct?
1: Yeah, so prostate cancer is the most common cancer in men in South Africa and in many countries around the world but in South Africa, certainly it is the most common cancer in men.
0: Okay, and uh, who is at risk for prostate cancer? Is it uh, all men? I heard a stat that all men will get it if you live long enough.
1: So, there seems to be a a genetic uh, component to it. So, it is more common in certain ethnic groups. Um, In in black men, it is more common than in, in white or uh, Asian as well, um, because of that, South Africa certainly has a, a, a high um, rate of cancers. Um, locally, um, in, in our in our country, we um, certainly see a, quite a quite a predilection in the Jewish community, although not advanced or or certainly not. Uh, um, dangerous types of cancers. Uh, you did mention that um, if all men live long enough they would they would get cancer. And that raises another point is that prostate cancer is quite uh, a wide ranging cancer and you get lots of uh non-aggressive as well as aggressive types of cancers and a whole spectrum in between. Um, because of that um, You know, you have to look at um, each case individually. You have to look at all types of cancer separately. And you have to look at whether the cancer is significant or not significant
0: cancer as well. What are the risk factors for prostate cancer? And uh, maybe you can tell us uh, when, how to check for it and when to start screening.
1: So the most important risk factor would be a, a family history. And this would more importantly be a young age of onset. So, if your family member and we talk about close family members, father, brother, if they were to to be diagnosed with cancer at a young age, so from their forties or fifties, that would increase their risk. Uh, older onset of cancers, seventies and above, is not necessarily considered uh, to make you more at high risk. So, in terms of To to check, there's two main tests that we we do to screen for prostate cancer. One is a blood test, the PSA, uh, which in itself uh, brings a whole host of problems as well, looking at it. And the second one is a physical examination of the prostate. Uh, You can have prostate cancer with a normal blood test and an abnormal feeling prostate. And you can also have prostate cancer with um, an abnormal blood test uh abnormal blood test with a normal prostate
0: as well. Okay, so when should you start having this uh, blood test? When should the average person start having it and when should they have the manual examination?
1: So screen tests, there's different guidelines around the world, but it seems to, seems to, consensus to be is that we should start screening from uh, the 50s, from when you uh, turn 50 and, and above although a lot of um, guidelines say to start from your 40s as well, or one test or just to have a baseline test from your 40s. If you are at risk um, because you have a family history and so on, then certainly you should start checking from a younger
0: age from the 40s as well. Okay, and, and this blood test, if it's abnormal, then if it's raised, it warrants further investigation?
1: So further investigation, yes, uh, but if it's raised, doesn't always necessarily mean it's abnormal. It doesn't necessarily mean it's cancer. It could be abnormal for other reasons. A raised PSA can go up because of an infection uh, for inflammation of the prostate, um, and because of that, you need to to have a look at why you may be getting a raised PSA as well. Um, An enlarged prostate can also produce a higher normal PSA. So a normal prostate, which may be about 30 grams, you would expect a lower PSA than if you have a very large prostate, measuring over 100 grams and so on. So you need to look at it in the context of your age, your ethnicity, how big your prostate may be, and whether you're you're having symptoms of of
0: other prostatic diseases as well. I think, I, I think a lot of men hear about uh, prostate exams and uh, big stigma or fear around uh, digital rectal examinations and maybe that's why people don't want to get uh, tested. So if they have the uh, the blood, how good is it just to have the blood test and then when, when you send them for a rectal examination of the prostate? So
1: even if it is uncomfortable, it is still necessary and If you have the blood test alone, it's not as good as having an examination and a blood test to screen for prostate cancer. Uh, The blood test um, itself, as we say, is not completely reliable, but um, it just gives you an idea and gives you alerts you to the fact that there may be a problem or an issue. Um, Yes, it is. It's embarrassing and sure, it's it's uncomfortable, but um, you know. um, you can you can certainly uh, you know learn a lot about a person's prostate health um, through an examination, and that examination can save a lot of uh, trouble or problem
0: later on and save your life ultimately save your life absolutely okay. um,
1: I mean prostate cancer is not necessarily about saving lives diagnosing it it's also about uh, saving a lot of uh, pain and suffering that can that can occur with prostate cancer. Prostate cancer tends to spread to bones, and as a result of that, you can have a lot of uh, complications relating to that, such as fractures, pain, uh, spinal cord compression, and diagnosis of prostate cancer or early diagnosis can lead or um, prevent a lot of those complications. So not necessarily only death, but the the suffering that
0: goes along with uh, undiagnosed prostate cancer. Okay, we're going to take a short break now, and when we get back, we can just talk maybe about uh, how you make the diagnosis of prostate cancer and a little bit about the treatment. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of DISCAM, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to DISCAM Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We're speaking to specialist urologist, Dr. Raphael Bloomberg. We're in the middle of talking about uh, prostate cancer. We spoke a bit about uh, screening and examination. How do you make the diagnosis of prostate cancer?
1: So ultimately you need a biopsy, and a biopsy involves taking samples from the prostate which would confirm the presence of cancer. Um, An MRI can help you to, to decide whether it's a clinically significant prostate or prostate cancer but it doesn't replace a biopsy in order to determine whether there's cancer or not uh, MRIs are becoming more and more part of our um, use in trying to diagnose prostate cancer um, and trying to limit unnecessary unnecessary biopsies but uh, ultimately you do need a biopsy to, to confirm a diagnosis um, I mean I did mention an unnecessary biopsy the reason why we want to avoid um, biopsies, if you if you don't need them, is because there are complications involved, and so we don't enter into biopsy unless it's clinically necessary or there is a significant suspicion of prostate cancer.
0: Okay, so you send the specimen to the lab, and they tell you you've got prostate cancer. How do you? I'm sure there must be many modalities of treatment. When you just run through some of the the, the basics? Obviously, you can't cover everything.
1: So Essentially, we divide prostate cancer into localized, if you want to say, to to confine to the prostate or to the pelvis, and then prostate cancer that has spread beyond uh, the lymph nodes or has spread to the bones or other organs. Uh, prostate cancer that's localized to the prostate, if it is low risk, uh, you can leave it, you can watch it. It uh, doesn't have to be treated. And by watch it, I mean, you can monitor it carefully, you can recheck your PSA, you can have uh, subsequent biopsies to see if there's any signs of progression and only treat it if it becomes significant. When it comes to treating prostate cancer that's localized, we have two main types of treatment. One is surgery and the other one is radiation. The surgery involves removing the entire prostate gland along with the capsule and um, lymph nodes as well, if if necessary. Um, the majority of surgery these days overseas and becoming far more popular here in South Africa is to do robotic surgery. And the reason why robotic surgery is so much better than the previous surgery, uh, open surgery or laparoscopic surgery, is that you are have a much better magnified view of the prostate. You have um, A better anatomical dissection, and that leads to less complications and a better recovery. So um, that this is one of the; those are some of the main reasons why it's becoming more and more popular, both overseas and here and locally as well. The other main treatment of prostate cancer is radiation, and this can be done in a number of ways. The one is You know, you may hear about is brachytherapy. Brachytherapy is um, entails implanting radioactive pellets into the prostate in order to kill the cancer cells. This can be used in isolation or combined with external beam uh, radiation. And we may give external beam for a number of reasons. And the reasons may be because there's a little of spread outside the prostate because there's a little bit of suspicious nodes, or because the prostate cancer itself is a higher risk, and we want to you know make sure we've
0: killed all the, the prostate cancer cells. And uh, what about when the cancer has uh, spread? How aggressive is it? And is there anything you can do to control the,
1: the spread? So, once cancer has spread, the mainstay of trying to control it is by uh, using hormone therapy as well as chemotherapy. Hormone therapy um, involves stopping testosterone or blocking your testosterone. Testosterone essentially is the food of the prostate. Uh, it what causes the prostate and the prostate cancer to grow. So by completely blocking your testosterone levels, you can shrink and you can control and contain prostate cancer. Giving chemotherapy... May be added, so sometimes you may be on hormone therapy alone. sometimes your, your doctor may send you to an oncologist to, to give you chemotherapy as well. and this leads to a longer um, give you a longer lifespan and to prevent some of the complications of prostate cancer, such as the um, fractures,
0: um, bone disease, bone spread uh, as well. Okay, so once we're on speaking about uh, the prostate, let's talk, you mentioned earlier, an enlarged prostate. What's so bad about having an enlarged prostate? Who gets enlarged prostate?
1: Your prostate is unique in that it continues to grow throughout your life. So as we age, um, a lot of our organs stop growing, a lot of our body functions start to deteriorate, but your prostate continues to grow. Um, The one thing is that prostate size doesn't necessarily um, correlate with symptoms. So some people may develop symptoms of an enlarged prostate, even though their prostate is not significantly enlarged. And other people um, may have very big prostates and continue to have mild symptoms. So when it becomes important is when those symptoms start to cause complications. So if you're getting infections, if you start bleeding from your prostate, if you start um, affecting your kidney function, then those are reasons to start um, uh, to get therapy or to get some sort of treatment for your prostate. If you're not having a complication, then it's more about um, treating your symptoms. When it comes to treating prostate symptoms, um, you can have either medication or you can have a, a procedure for your prostate, uh, some sort of surgical procedure, or some sort of minimally invasive procedure for your prostate, and that really is more a subjective thing, uh, depending on how, how bothered you are by the symptoms of your
0: enlarged prostate. Sorry, I should have asked this in the beginning before you even spoke about it. Can just tell us anatomically where your prostate gland is, where it sits, and what its normal function is?
1: So your prostate gland sits at the base of your bladder. So just as the urethra, which is the tube which through which your, your urine exits the bladder, um, there's a gland sitting around it, and it pretty much encircles the urethra and the base of the, the bladder. And as it grows, it can constrict and make it more difficult to urinate. Its function is mainly to contribute to the seminal fluid. And um, so as you age, that function is needed needed less. And so removing a part of the prostate doesn't really impact on your your functionality as well. um the, the the prostate gland can enlarge in a number of ways, and depending on how it enlarges or how it enlarges into your bladder, will depend on how your you you develop symptoms at an older age.
0: What do you, so your prostate enlarges, and causes some urinary constriction. And um, what what are the what are the medications that you give, and what uh, uh, what how do they work? What do they what do they do? Do they shrink the prostate? Do they just relax it? So there's
1: two types, two types of medications that you can get. You can get medications which relax your, your, um, bladder neck and your prostate, your urethra. In other words, they're allowing your body to, uh, to allow you to pass urine better. And the, the common names that you hear about are Euromax, Flomax, um, Sinodex. So these medications allow you to pass urine better. They relax. Um, the prosthetic urethra and they allow urine to flow the other group of medications that we use um, cause your prostate to shrink um, they can take a lot longer to work because it takes a couple of, your month, a couple of months before your prostate starts to shrink um, those medications you may hear about Avodot um, Benasteride um, various names similar to that Um, you can use a combination of the two. There's something relatively new on the market. It's been around for about two or three years now, Duodart, which is a combination of both the Euromax and the Finasteride
0: or Duodart. Okay. And is there anything surgical you can do about enlarged prostate?
1: So the surgical options, the most common is you may hear about is a TURP, Which basically involves scraping out some of the prostate from the inside. Um, You're not removing the entire prostate because that's a it has it's a big operation with more complications. So what you essentially do when you have a TRP is you scrape or remove a little bit of the prostate that's causing the blockage. This is done through the urethra, so there's no cuts or from the outside of the body. So it's done through through the, the urethra, which is accessed through the penis in men, and you um, use a laser. It can be done through cautery. It can be done through a number of mechanisms, and the outcomes are pretty similar to which, whichever mechanism you choose. Um, the difference between the laser and the standard TRPs you can use, can do bigger prostates. Of um, course, a little bit of less bleeding. so. Essentially, that's
0: what you're trying to achieve. Okay, we're going to take another short ad break and then we'll be back with uh, Dr. Raphael Bloomberg. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We're speaking to Dr. Raphael Bloomberg, specialist urologist. We've just been speaking about uh, prostate problems so far. What about moving up into the bladder? What what are the most common uh, bladder pathologies you see in your practice?
1: So bladder uh, problems can be, I mean, the common thing that we see is infections, uh, recurrent infections, uh, bladder infections, we also get voiding uh, problems over active bladder or irritable bladder. Um, irritable bladder can occur from other diseases as well, or it in itself can be uh, a disease. Um, and these are common reasons for people to see their their GP as well and, and be referred on to urologists.
0: And uh, cancer-wise, Bladder cancer is it a common thing?
1: So bladder cancer is is fairly common. Um, bladder cancer usually presents with blood in the urine, and for that reason, if you ever see blood in the urine, you should always you know be see your doctor to be checked out to uh, to make sure that it is not a potential cancer. Look, there are many other causes for blood in the urine, but it's a sign that you should always take seriously. Um, because of that, um, it, it is one of the symptoms that you should always you know, seek medical help for,
0: blood in the urine. And bladder cancer, sorry? Sorry, no, you carry on. are talking about the uh, diagnosis of bladder cancer. Okay. Well,
1: bladder cancer is, is most commonly associated with smoking. Mm-hmm. Uh, the commonest risk factor for, for bladder cancer is, is smoking. And one of the problems that we see as specialists is that Uh, a little bit of of late referral of bladder cancer because bladder cancer typically is painless. So people assume that because they don't have any other symptoms, uh, they may see the blood, but they don't have pain, they often come late to see their doctor, and sometimes their doctor may delay in referring them to a a specialist. But uh, early diagnosis of bladder cancer does make a difference because early diagnosis of bladder cancer can prevent... um, Advanced disease, um, and, um, more uh, difficult treatment of, 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 or more complex treatment of bladder cancer.
0: Okay, and, uh, so how, you, how do you make the diagnosis of bladder cancer and maybe you can talk about some of the treatments?
1: So, essentially to diagnose bladder cancer, you need a, something called a cystoscopy, which is a scope in, in into your bladder. Um, initially, you may have um, an investigation like an ultrasound or a CT scan uh, in order to to look where the the source of the bleeding may be coming from, um, and you may see a mass or a growth on an ultrasound or a CT scan. But essentially, you need a, a cystoscopy or a scope in order to to diagnose and um, to initially to remove the the, the bladder cancer. Um, bladder cancers are, can be divided into those that are superficial, that are just sitting inside your bladder, and those that are starting to go into the wall of the bladder. Uh, most cancers are more superficial and can be removed during a, a cystoscopy or a scope. If they start to to involve or to go grow deeper into the wall of the bladder, then you have to consider. Uh, removal of the bladder, which fortunately is, is, is far less common uh, than
0: superficial bladder cancers. Okay. Let's move a little bit up going anatomically moving up to the ureters and the kidneys. I'm sure everybody's heard of kidney stones and that makes up a significant amount of your, of your, your practice. So what are kidney stones and who is at risk of getting them?
1: So there are many, many causes for for kidney stones, and um, I mean the commonest group to get them is young men, typically men in their twenties to forties. But as and it's more a Western thing, but as as uh, people's um, diets change and risk factors change, we're seeing stones which typically were more common in men. We're seeing them more commonly in women now as well, whereas we were seeing more with in first world settings, we now seeing them more commonly in third world settings as well. Um, there are many, many causes for for kidney stones, and part of of uh, trying to figure out those causes would be trying to trying to prevent the stone. Would be trying to figure out uh, figure out a cause as well. Um, and stones, I mean, besides being Painful and and uh, being notoriously painful compared to even childbirth, the level of pain that people may experience with stones. They can potentially, if if are uh, are big and ignored, can cause problems for your kidney as well. Why are they so painful? So the ones that are painful are the ones in the the ureter. There's a very very small tube which connects your kidneys to your bladder, and that carries the urine that's produced in your kidneys down to your bladder. And as that's such a, a small tube, even a small stone can cause that tube to start stretching and um, dilating. And that stretching, dilating of that little tube causes the, the
0: the the pain. Okay. So, is there anything people can do to prevent having kidney stones? Uh, in general,
1: the, the the main thing is to stay well hydrated. Um, that's regardless of the the type of stone you have. But um, so drinking two to three litres of water a day, um, especially if if it stays where um, in you know where it's hot, where you're exercising, uh, to stay well hydrated. The other things that are um important for stones will be depending on the type of stone. But just in general, um it's shown that high protein or animal diets that are um, um, have a lot of animal protein in them are most at risk. So animal protein doesn't only include, you know, in this instance um, meat, it includes poultry and includes fish as well, and limiting animal protein in your diet will, will help to prevent stones. Um, taking things like fresh vegetables are also important because those bring down the acid load caused by the, the animal protein, so having a lot of, a lot of fresh vegetables
0: will help to, to prevent the stones as well. Are there certain medications that, that can give you kidney stones? So they
1: are, but they are um, quite unusual. Um, some of the anti-retribot.
0: No, I've heard people say that drinking different fizzy, or um, calcium, calcium drinks or uh, vitamin cocktails can give you, is that a myth?
1: So, um, that is true. Vitamin C does, uh, does cause stones. So vitamin C is, when it's metabolized, can can form oxalate, and that can lead to, to stone formation, particularly if you're taking vitamin C in high doses over a long period of time. Uh, people who are deficient and need vitamins um, are less at risk than those who, who have a healthy diet and are taking extra vitamins without uh, a need for it, but uh, certainly taking a high dose of vitamin C over a long period of time can lead to stones. Okay, so how
0: do you treat the stones?
1: So that depends on whether they're causing complications um, such as infection or blocking your kidneys, because then they need to be removed. Um, otherwise, we look at whether they're big or, um, where they're positioned, because sometimes if they're small, they can certainly pass by themselves. Um, if you're you know able to control the pain, if you're able to um to, to, to manage um, uh, the stone can pass through into the bladder and once it's passed through into the bladder, you'll be able to urinate it out uh, fairly easily. If they fail to pass or they're causing complications like an infection or they're blocking a, your, your kidney and uh, leading to kidney failure, um, mm-hmm. then certainly you have to intervene and do something about it. Um, It's unusual that a stone can cause kidney failure. People have two kidneys, and if blockage in the one will certainly not uh, lead to kidney failure. But if people have a pre-existing kidney condition or pre-existing kidney failure already, then um, certainly we need to to be proactive in removing
0: stones. Okay, and uh, you do that with uh, like an external, I know there's an external beam that can crush them. And then you can also put in stents or, or remove them via scope. Is that correct?
1: Yes. So you can go externally through a shockwave, although shockwave can only, um, you know, um, uh, crush softer stones. So some of the stones are harder and they require a laser. If they require a laser, then it has to be done um, through a scope inside your body uh, where you're putting a scope into the bladder and then up the ureter and into the kidney where you can use like a, a laser on the stone to 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 crush it, and you've got graspers
0: and baskets whatever to pull the stone out. Okay, perfect. We're going to take another short ad break right now, and maybe we'll speak uh, a little about kidneys, and then maybe finish off with testicle. We'll be back after this. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discount Medical Monday. I'm your host Dean and We're speaking to Dr. Raphael Bloomberg, specialist urologist. Taking a journey through the urogenital system, we've moved up now from the prostate to the bladder and the ureters, and now we're talking about the the kidneys. We spoke about kidney stones, which I guess originate in the kidneys and get uh, blocked in in the ureters. What other problem, common problems do you see with the kidneys? And maybe you can tell us just about uh, a little bit about uh, renal cell carcinoma, or kidney cancer.
1: So, kidney cancers—they used to be a lot worse than they are now, and the reason is because they presented a—you know—quite late. By the time you you diagnose a kidney cancer, it's usually quite advanced disease because uh, they're largely silent. Um, by the time they're producing symptoms. Um, it's it's usually a lot later on in the disease process. Um, these days, we're diagnosing kidney cancers much much more early because they're being diagnosed because people are having CT scans and ultrasounds for whatever any whatever reason, and we pick them up incidentally. So it's allowed us to make uh, much earlier diagnosis of kidney cancers and therefore uh, treat them a lot earlier. Um, kidney cancers usually are in, in present older or in, in older individuals after the age of 60 or 70. Sometimes they can be um, in in younger in younger people as part of a, a genetic syndrome, but that's um, quite unusual. You do get kidney tumors in children as well known as Wolms tumors is the is the common one you get in children. And um, those usually present as lumps
0: or growth that are noticed by the parents or, or felt by the parents as well. Okay. And uh infections or um, are they dealt with uh do you deal with them or do nephrologists deal with them? So
1: both nephrologists or urologists or physicians or GPs, many people deal with kidney infections. Uh, They usually refer to to urologists if there are complications like an abscess forms or um, very, very severe infections which require some sort of surgical intervention. Um, If a kidney infection doesn't improve with antibiotics, you should always look a little bit further to see why because there's usually an underlying reason why an infection isn't healing, such as an abscess or a collection of, of pus, or or an area of the kidney that cannot drain, uh, and in those cases, then uh, certainly urologists uh, may be uh, involved in order to to do some sort of surgical procedure or drainage procedure, where um, in order to facilitate healing in that
0: patient. Okay, all right. Let's move all the way back down now to to the testicles. And uh what's the most what's the most common uh, problem you see with the uh, testicles? I mean, we can talk a bit about. I mean, we I've heard we've heard about uh, torsion and mumps and uh, cancer, but fill me in on on anything else that you think is relevant.
1: The most common thing that we really see is relating to pain, painful testicles, and um, sometimes you find a cause, sometimes you don't. Um, painful testicles. As you, you mentioned, one of the conditions, one of the very serious conditions, is a testicular torsion, and this typically happens in um, teenagers or young young adults, where the testicle twists on its own blood supply, and the blood supply can be cut off, which can lead to the death of the testicle, and that can happen uh, within a few hours. So that's really uh, a severe severe pain and needs to be dealt with. Um, uh, as an extreme emergency because that needs to be physically or surgically um, repaired or untwisted. Um, infections certainly cause uh, cause pain in the testicles. Um, they can be urinary tract infections. They can be viral infections. They can be sexually transmitted infections that cause um, infections in the testicle as well. Um, the one that you did mention is mumps. So um, the one concern, if if you develop um, infection in your testicles after mumps, it can be associated with um, fertility issues as well. Uh, not always, not commonly, but uh, certainly it has the potential to cause fertility issues. Okay,
0: um, we're going to take another short ad break, and then we'll finish up just talking about testicular cancer. We'll be back after this. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Dyscam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to our final few minutes of DisCam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson. We're speaking to Dr. Rafael Bloomberg, specialist urologist, Chris haney Hospital in Life bedford Gardens. Uh, we're speaking about the testicles now, and uh, testicular cancer, unfortunately, um, yeah, usually in younger men, is that correct? And what's the, the prognosis?
1: So, testicular cancer occurs in young men. Um, it's it's a very fast-growing cancer, and so it needs to be deal, dealt with quite urgently. But that in itself um, leads to a very, very good prognosis, and it's one of the cancers that we treat that even if it spreads or becomes advanced, still carries a, a, an excellent prognosis. Um, with surgery, with radiation, with chemotherapy, um, well over 95% of testicular cancers can be cured. I mean, the typical um, presenting feature of a testicular cancer is a lump um, in the testicle. Um, not usually painful. It's usually not painful. So anybody who has a suspicious lump in their testicle should um, have it seen to, you know, fairly quickly, as testicular cancers grow very, very quickly. Um, it's something that shouldn't be uh, uh, delayed in in seeking any medical attention.
0: Okay, and how how's it diagnosed?
1: So the first um, test your your doctor will probably send you for is an ultrasound, and uh, on an ultrasound you be able to see if the testicle has a mass or, or not in it. Um, and the next thing will uh, require some sort of surgical intervention to remove the mass or the whole testicle as well.
0: Okay, and uh, does it spread fast?
1: It does. It does spread quickly, but um, because it does spread quickly, it makes it more sensitive to chemotherapy, and because it's more sensitive to chemotherapy, it does
0: tend to be cured um, more easily. Okay, brilliant. Okay, Dr. Bilge, thank you so much for spending a hour with us. We really appreciate it. If patients want to get hold of you or people want to get hold of you, what are the numbers for your rooms? Or uh, maybe you can give us an email address there as well.
1: Okay, so um, if, you, if you look up the Life Bedford Gardens Hospital, you'll be able to scroll down and my room numbers will be there as well as a, a contact email address uh, if necessary.
0: Okay. You wanna give us a, a number? No one four zero zero. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Rafael Bloomberger, for joining us. Thank you everybody for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Stay safe and we'll see you next week on one oh one point nine five M. Thank you.